in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Tonight we're continuing in the book of Joshua. And tonight um, I've titled the sermon called to turn. And if you couldn't tell from the song choices in the scriptures, we're going to be talking about sin. And uh, it's everyone's favorite topic to talk about in church, uh, why we're here. And we're going to be handling some big issues. You know, in the book of Joshua, we've been going through a lot. But a lot of it's had a very positive sort of spin to it. We've been talking about covenant, and we've been talking about God's providence and his promise and his care. And all of these things fit in with this, but tonight we're going to talk about some really big issues. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about communal sin. We're going to talk about idolatry. We're even going to mention the idea of holy war and what that means. And so tonight we, we sort of have two goals, uh, and, and I'll explain those after we read the text. But first, um, let's go to Joshua chapter 7 together. It's on page 119, 119 in your Bibles. And we'll read through to verse 13. This is uh, Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Comri, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not be weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, and they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out your, our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned and they have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, that which is devoted is among you. O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about two things. The first thing is we need to set up all of the reasons this was such a big deal. Uh, you know, when we read a book that's very, very old, written in a language not our own, there are some discrepancies we have to talk about. 
We have to compare some of the truths we know from those who study ancient Hebrew and have really dug into these texts and what they mean with the truths we know to our lives and what we've experienced. This is why when we study a book like Joshua, Uh, It's helpful to really get into it and not just sort of come and hear once a week or once every couple of weeks, but to spend time studying all that this book has and have continued study. And as we study all of Scripture together, the picture becomes much more clear. As an isolated story, this story is very difficult to understand. But as as a full picture, anyone who's seen an Impressionist painting knows if you stand right here, it doesn't really make any sense, does it? Yet as you back away and you see the brushstrokes and the colors come together into a picture, you realize what the artist was trying to do. And in the same way, I want you to always remember that when you think about some of these difficult stories in the Old Testament, especially how this story ends up. Many of you know the answer to that. That we have to step back and look at all of Scripture and what God is revealing about himself and how he loves us. And the second thing we want to do is we want to compare that truth to what we know of God through Jesus, to what we know of the covenant God has made with us and how Jesus taught about sin from our first scripture reading. And so as we do that, I just want to remind you of a few things you may know, you may not know. Uh, But when it came to war, we haven't talked about this yet in in our Joshua series. When it came to war, there was actually rules. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, God had laid out rules before the conquest ever began about how they should go to war, about the rules, about the the, the order. And one of the things he said was that you should not take anything from the other people or from the gods or from the places you conquer and keep it for yourselves. Any of these things devoted to other gods, any idols, any things used for worship, because this is detestable to me, is what God says essentially. And one of the things we sometimes forget, again, if we're reading an isolated story about a man who takes some of these devoted things, we think, well, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. But see, Joshua wasn't making this up as he went along. God had laid out all of these designs and all of the things he desired of them before any of it started. You know, in Deuteronomy, we talked about this last year, when we were talking about some of the kings in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, God lays out rules for kings before Israel even had a king. And he said, you're going to want a king, and one day when you have a king, here's the rules. And in the same way, he said, hey, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to go and you're going to take this land, and it's going to be a land of milk and honey, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, but there is going to be some rules for how you're to do it. And as we talked about last week with the covenants and with what God was doing, the chief goal, the number one goal of God was holiness. That that God's people and those those who say that he is their God would be holy and set apart above all else. To do things differently than the world around them. And it's amazing to me when I read this scripture... When I read the Old Testament, some people struggle to read the Old Testament, and many of you know I don't, because when we read the Old Testament, one of the things I I believe God really is trying to show us when we look, like I said, the whole picture, is that God meets us in ways we can understand, that God comes down and sort of can help us understand and help us unfold some of these things. You know, if you study the book of Deuteronomy, for example, 
It seems odd to us how the laws are written out and all the specific laws and all the things, if you do this, then I will do this, and back and forth and back and forth. Well, at the time, in Hebrew, it was written as, as what's called a vassal treaty or, or, or a treaty between a ruler and a servant, right? And this is something, a form of literature people would have been familiar with. If you made a deal to work for someone or to do something, it would have been in a similar structure. And so when the people read the law, they saw it as we are serving God. In the same way, later on in the Old Testament, when, when King Solomon comes around and they build the temple, some people, it disturbs them to know this, but, but they modeled the temple after other temples to pagan gods. They just built them bigger and stronger after Phoenician gods and, and, and a temple entire. And it wasn't a bad thing, but God allowed the people to use what they knew and what they were familiar with to reveal himself to them. And so, too, with war and with this whole story, we have to remember the reasons God has for this. Because God knew the people would be tempted. And here we enter into the reasons behind and the fear and the importance of sin. So, if, you, if, you're, if you'd like, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's a little bit to your left. If not, I'll read it out loud, but it's on page 103 in your Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 12... God is laying out some of the foundations about worship and what's most important to him. And and, and God says this in verses 29 to about 31. He says, The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. Remember, this is before any of this happened. He says, But when you have driven them out and settled in their land... And they have been destroyed before you. Be careful not to, in, to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods. Saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And so God says early on, before the conquest even happens, he says, listen, you're going to be tempted to take their idols, to take their habits, to to integrate into their culture, but you cannot do that because this is detestable to God. And notice what he says in Deuteronomy when you drive the people out. Not murder, not recklessly destroy everything, but when you drive them out of the land. It's interesting. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to read you one more. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 13. He's talking similarly about these things, about the practices of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And this is what God says to the people. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, this is starting in verse 9, Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in a fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. See, so as we talked about last week, God desires holiness above all for his people. 
And he says you are going to be tempted to do things that you should not do and that you must not engage in the ways of these people. And not destroying all of the cultural items and all the idolatry it would open the door to sin for the people. It's the same reason God also said not to intermarry with them. He said, listen, you have to drive them out because if you intermarry with them, what will happen? You'll have children and then, and then one person will want to practice the rights of their family and another person the rights of their family. And we see it later in Scripture. Read the book of Judges. Read the book of Kings. What happens is the people are intermarrying. We have stories of even the king of Israel one day marrying a woman named Jezebel. And she takes and divides the people and tells them they have to worship the God Baal. It happens anyways, but God says even before any of it begins, he says, this is not my desire for you. We must remember as a foundation for this story and for understanding the Old Testament, God wants holiness for his people. And in Deuteronomy 20, when it talks about the call to go in and drive the people out, it actually uses the word destroy, which throws a lot of people off. They say, well... Why would God, a loving God, want to destroy people? That doesn't seem right. Well, note the two passages we just read, he says to drive them out. And those that stay, those are the ones who will be put to the sword because they are evil and they are fighting for their evil ways. This is why we have to sort of be in the Word and this is why we have to study. You know, when we look at Scripture, it reveals truth upon truth upon truth. And as we look at the big picture of Scripture, it makes more sense. Why would there be rules? God knew there would be temptation. God knew the people would be driven away from him and pulled away from him. These rules were there to establish holiness. And as we talked about last week, you cannot have one foot in each camp. Right? Or to use the words of Jesus, there's two roads. There's a narrow road and a broad road. There's no sort of third direction where you can kind of worship God and kind of not worship God. And so God is setting up rules for them that they would not be tempted. And if you consider the people and put yourself in the shoes of Achan as we look at this story, they probably had very little possessions. They'd been wandering in the desert for their whole lives carrying what they can on their back and on animals. And, and, and when they would go into Jericho, how tempting would it be to take some of those gold and silver items? One of the things it mentions later in Joshua, there's this beautiful, beautiful clothing from Babylon. They've been wandering around in the same clothes for 40 years in the desert. It would be tempting to take some of this beautiful, fine linens. But these were detestable practices to God. And he wanted the worship of these false gods and these idols to be rid of them. And so this is why we study. This is why I mention all these passages in Deuteronomy before we even talk about this Joshua passage. Because by itself, Joshua 7 is very difficult. There's no getting around that, as we will see. So in Joshua 7, back to our text. In verse 1, it says very clearly and very straightforward that there is this person named Achan, and he was unfaithful. He took devoted things, which is, as we've learned from Deuteronomy, a big no-no. And God got upset. And as I said, I I understand him. As a sinner, as someone who struggles, as someone who, who has the same temptations we all do, I understand. Why not? 
You know, if you're reading this story in a vacuum and you're not reading it in light of all of Deuteronomy and what God has already told the people, it makes sense. Why not just take a little extra? You know, they they just had this great victory. Just take a little extra to, to secure the future of his family. It's not a problem. We'll hide it under the tent. No one will know. Well, when we look at all of Scripture in Deuteronomy and the foundation of the whole conquest of Canaan, we realize that this is opening the door, not just for sin for Achan, but for his family and for idolatry for the entire nation of Israel. But it's interesting because the the writer gives us verse 1 and then just jumps to Joshua. The writer gives us verse 1 and says, here's this guy, he did this thing, it was really bad. But we're going to talk about Joshua now. So in verse 2, the story moves to Joshua, and we'll come back to this guy. And it gives us information on Joshua. So what does Joshua do? He's just had a great victory. He's a military leader. His name is, going, is becoming famous in the land, and he decides, we're going to go out to this next city, and we're going to see what they have. Same way they did with Jericho, same way they did with the land before they entered it. He sends spies. And the spies come back, and, and, and what do they say? They say, hey, this is going to be no problem. They don't have very many people. We'll just send a couple thousand. It'll be fine. We'll problem solved. And so Joshua makes a decision. Joshua says, great, let's do it. But when we study scripture and we look at this, there's something different about this event than the entirety of the book of Joshua up to this point. Every time Joshua made a decision, it was because the Lord told him to do it. Go back this week if you have time and look at all the decisions to cross the Jordan You know, look at the decisions to set up stones of remembrance, to send spies into Jericho, to attack Jericho, how he was going to attack Jericho. All of these things leading up to this point, the Lord is giving him direct information and direct, um, you know, commands. But he doesn't go to the Lord. It just says when they return, Joshua said, great, not all the people are going to have to go. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Do not weary all the people. Don't worry about it. Let's just get this over with and we'll move on. And the writer is clearly omitting instructions of the Lord here. And this is how the Bible writes. This is how the ancient Hebrew is written. It, it sets a pattern for things. And, it's, and it sets a pattern, 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 pattern. And then when the pattern breaks, we're supposed to notice it. And so I wanted to point that out to you. Because it might not have been wrong for Joshua to, to go and attack this city. And this would be, but, but the problem was is he did not consult the Lord first. And the author wants us to know this. Because there was sin in the camp. Verse 1, it says there was sin in the camp and there was a problem and Joshua didn't address it. And so what happens? Well, as we see, they were routed, it says. They got whooped. But then the author gives us another detail, which I love. Look at the last part of verse 5. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Now, if you've been reading Joshua and if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll notice this is what it always said about the Canaanites. The Canaanites were fearful of Israel. The Canaanites were fearful of God. The Canaanites were, their hearts melted and they had no strength in them. But now we have this giant, colossal shift in the story of Joshua and the people of Israel. That because sin has entered, all of their confidence, all of their strength, all of their assurance in God has gone. See what sin does? You know, we human beings are so fickle. Do you know that word, fickle? 
that, that were blown about by the wind, that were constantly changing. These people just had a great victory of God where they defeated the biggest city, the biggest fortified city, maybe in the world at that time, with trumpets. And God gives them this great victory, and now just the very next step, they're wondering, what have we done? Even Joshua, this great leader, says, why have we come here just to be beaten by the Amorites? The same way the people in the desert said, why did we come out the desert to starve? We were better as slaves in Egypt. And as observers, we read this and we think, oh, these people are so weak. (laughs) I wouldn't have done that. Come on, they just had all these miracles and they've seen it all. How could they say that? But we know we do the same thing. We know God has provided for us. We know God has given. It doesn't mean there isn't hard times. It doesn't mean there aren't setbacks. But we know God loves us. And we've seen it in our lives. And yet one hard thing happens and we wonder, God, where are you? It's amazing how human beings haven't changed for 3,000, 4,000 years. And it leads to to a very predictable response of Joshua in verse 6, that he tears his clothes and him and the elders are mourning and they put dust and ashes on their heads and they're in this position of mourning and and, and, and penance before God. And Joshua asks a question we've all asked in our lives, why God? Why have you done this to me? Why have you done this to me? Why have you done this to the people? Why would you lead us here to this position of difficulty, to this position of pain? And when it comes to sin, at least, this is God's response. And I love this response. Look at verse 10 with me. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Now, now you may not be wired the same way I am. But I tend to sort of get wrapped up in my own emotions and get very down on myself. And, And not many of you have seen it. Because as a pastor, I sort of guard it. My wife certainly has. But, but I can get very down on myself and sort of wallow and, and, and let my mind spin out of control into guilt and, and second-guessing. And I read this and I just think, this is God's response when we do this. He looks at us and says, get up. There's no shame. There's no pain. I don't want you. He's not going to kick us while we're down or make us feel worse. He says, get up and consecrate yourself. There is sin, there is pain, there is guilt, whatever it is. There's a reason it happened. Let's deal with it together. Let's move on and face this sin. Because as we know, when there is sin, there is a reaction, there are results, there are consequences. But most of the times, it's not God's fault. When we talk about suffering, when we talk about hardships, we talk about difficulties in life, It's usually one of two things. It's either our own sin or the sin of someone else affecting us. Now, we can't control other people. But even when it's other people or it's our own choices, it's so much easier to blame God than take responsibility, isn't it? God, how could you do this to me? Well, Joshua, you never asked me. God, how could you send us to death at the hands of the Amorites? There's sin in your life, man. There's sin you haven't confessed. There's sin that you don't even know about. Why are you rushing ahead without me? And it's hard for us to reconcile this sometimes. But what's amazing, if you look at verse 9, Joshua actually tries to blame God. He's a great leader and I love him. But he really misses it on verse 9. <laughs> the last line of verse 9. What then will you do for your own great name, God? 
If we don't defeat the Canaanites, if we don't do this, what are you going to do? You need us. How could you abandon us? You need us, God, for your great name. And God says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? And I read this and I immediately think of Paul's words that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that none of us are without blame. We may be negatively affected. There may be hardships in our lives because of the sin of others. And for that, I am sorry that you have experienced it. I know it full and I know it all too well. But we must look to God's response to Joshua in the midst of his mourning and in the midst of his pain to see what God says. He says, stand up and consecrate yourselves. Get holy. Get right with me. Go and make yourself holy. Set yourself apart because I've given you all that you need. Face this problem head on. And this is exactly how Joshua ends up handling it. If you read the end of Joshua chapter 7, he gets the elders together. And they sort of draw straws and they figure out who did it and, and, and they find out it's this man. And, and in our story, Achan finally confesses once he gets caught. And once he gets caught, he finally confesses. And, and, and the result is hard for us to understand. He and his family are stoned to death. His punishment of his sin is death. And it seems very drastic today. It seems very harsh for us because we all enjoy and love and know the grace of Christ. And we know forgiveness and we try to be forgiving people and we we try to understand why would God do something so harsh? But as the Apostle Paul said, in light of the cross of Christ, the wages of sin is death. We think it's not fair. We think, why would Achan and his family have to go through this? Because death is what we all deserve. We don't like talking about it, and we don't like hearing it, because we love Jesus and what he's done for us. But think about it on a small scale. One of the best things that can happen when you're lying and when you're in sin is to get caught. Because that's the only thing that sets you free. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but it allows you to consecrate yourself and get up again. And to be honest with you, I don't have a great reason why Achan and his family had to be stoned to death for this. But that's what God desired. And that was God's will to keep Israel holy. I want you to look at our New Testament reading. And I want you to think about what Jesus says about sin. He says that we should cut our hands off and pluck our eyes out. I haven't done that. I have two eyes. They're getting worse. For my sermons, I continually have to print size 16 font. It used to be 14. Soon it will be 18. But I haven't done this. Am I a bad pastor? I hope you would say no. And the reason is, is because we know Jesus is being a bit hyperbolic here. We know Jesus is saying, listen... When sin comes into your life, you need to stop it. And I don't say this jokingly because, again, the Old Testament story is difficult. But this is the only way to deal with our sin. Don't cut your hands off. Don't, Don't gouge your eyes out. 
But in the same way Joshua had to drive sin out of the camp of Israel, the same way we must seek and destroy and drive out sin of our life. God does not want us to wallow in our sin and our shortcomings and in our pain, to be hard on ourselves and sit on the ground and say, why God? God says, get up and make yourself holy. See, Jesus is great, and one of the problems with Jesus being so great and so loving and so mighty and so merciful to all of us is that we have gotten lazy. I, I, I don't often do this, and I don't often take such a hard stand, but I'm going to say it. One of my, I don't like him because he's such a hard teacher, but there's, there's a man in the U.S. named Matt Chandler, and he's a, he's a preacher. And one of the phrases he says that has meant so much to me in my development is that grace does not make sin safe. Okay? Say that again. Grace does not make sin safe. We think because we're forgiven that we have this free pass and we can sort of do whatever we want. And that we can sort of live life however we please. Well, I just messed up this once. I just messed up this one weekend. I just did this little thing. And and, and Jesus will forgive me and I'll reset tomorrow. That's not what we're talking about, because we've fooled ourselves if we think that we're safe. And we're fooling ourselves even more if we think our sin does not affect others. Look at this story. This didn't just affect him. It affected his family. It affected the men who died rushing into battle before they were ready. It affected Joshua and the elders. They were mourning. Imagine the responsibility as a leader feeling like your God has left you. Our sin cannot just hurt us, it can hurt so many people around us. And as I mentioned before, some of the hardships you've experienced are because other people have sinned to you. We are not called to sit idly in our sin. Sin robs us of joy in our confidence of the Lord. It cheapens grace and it leads to destruction and eventually death. Jesus even said this in Luke chapter 13. I'll just read it for you real quick. He said, do you think that these Galileans, he's talking about this parable that happened. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he says again, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. When we sin... The word sin, by the way, in Greek means miss the mark. It's like an archery term. When we miss the mark, when we miss holiness, right? The end of the New Testament reading was said, be perfect as God is perfect. Okay. I acknowledge you're not going to be perfect. We all are not going to be perfect. But when we miss the mark, when we sin, God does not load it on. God does not want us to be wallow in our pain and shame and, and think we're something that we're not. God says, you are my children. Get up and consecrate yourselves. Do what needs to be done to make yourselves clean. To the Israelites, God needed them and want, or wanted them, not needed them, excuse me. God wanted them to drive out the evil of the land and to make it holy. God wanted to show that his way was best. Because see, in the ancient world, when two cultures would fight, They would have their gods out in front, and it was, who's better, your God or my God? And when God wins, then the whole ancient world, when the Israelites win, the whole ancient world knows that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one true God. But for you and me, we're to drive the sin out of our lives and make them holy. That's what that word sanctification means, just to make ourselves holy. Holy. 
Because as Jesus said, or as the New Testament says, that when Jesus died, the veil tore, the Spirit left the temple, and it entered all of the believers in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We have become the temple of God. And there can be nothing devoted to other gods. There can be nothing devoted to idolatry in our temples, in our lives. You are the temple of the living God, so get rid of the sin and the devoted things and consecrate yourselves. We as a church should consecrate ourselves and come together in support and in love for one another that we would consecrate each other. We have all the tools for this. We don't need, like Achan, to to be tempted and to take things and try and hide it under our tent. We confess it. We share it with each other. We come together and, and we're honest with each other. We don't hide it. Achan's death was very difficult, and that's very clear. But was it fair? Well, as I mentioned before, in Romans 6.23, Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. To be completely honest with you, and I've said this before, I don't really want fair. I don't want God to be fair with me. I see the cross of Jesus Christ, and I want the grace Jesus offers in my life. To forgive my sins and give me a life of freedom. To stand up and be confident, whatever it is, knowing that God is there with me. Knowing that I've gotten rid of the devoted things and the idols in my life to trust Jesus with my whole heart. Not to try and hide them any longer. I admit this is difficult and a continual struggle, but we all know exactly what I'm talking about. And you all know of something that you've tried to hang on to, that you've tried to hide under your tent, some sin in your life that you just want to get rid of. I hope and pray that you can find someone to share it with. I hope and pray that you can confess it to the Lord your God, knowing he will be gracious to you. Because he's promised that to you. Because he loves you. 1 John 3.1, it's one of the first Bible passages I memorized. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto you, or us, that we should be called children of God. You are his child. He does not desire for you to sit on the ground and wallow in your sin and your pain, but to get up and be made holy. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you. God, sin is hard. I don't like it. But in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our missing the mark, in the midst of our desire for holiness, God, we know there is grace. Lord, I pray that that grace would not lead us to laziness, would not lead us to believe that sin is okay in our lives. Lord, that grace would lead us to be open and honest with our brothers and sisters in Christ and chiefly with you. Create in us a clean heart, Lord. You are good. We trust that you desire good for our lives. Give us strength when we're in pain. Give us strength to be your sons and daughters whom you love and to demolish the devoted things in our life that have been devoted to idolatry and to other gods. We acknowledge that is not for us. Lord, we desire holiness. In the name of your Son and all the power it carries with it to conquer all sin, we pray. Amen.